This sermon series is called Promises, Promises. And I, I don't, it's funny because every time Scott said that uh, the last few weeks, that that 80s song does come into my head. Uh, you know the one. And wh- this week I was replaying those lyrics in my head. And do you, if you remember the song, you made me promises, promises. You know that part, right? Not you younger people, but us boomers, we know what that means. Um, and then the lyrics after that say, he said, I knew you'd never keep. He says, promises, promises, why do I believe? That's crazy to think about. Because it, what's, what's in reality is the God that we serve, that song should go, prom, promises, promises, I know you'll always keep. Promises, promises, I know why I believe. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. That's how it should be. So we're going to rewrite the 80s songs. Um, I don't know about you. I could read something or I could be told something from somebody and I could understand it and I could hear it, but it doesn't always sink in right away, right? My wife's up front going, "Mm mm-hmm, yep. In fact, um, this is not like a new concept. Going back as far as the 1930s, there is a principle called the rule of seven in the marketing world. And the rule of seven says that a person needs to be exposed to or encounter a certain idea or message seven times before it starts to take root. The rule of seven. We all have little light bulbs in our, in our brains, and they're, they're sort of they're connected to some kind of emotion or some kind of you know, a catalyst. And once that, that catalyst ignites, those light bulbs go on, then things start to take root. Uh, and um, we can start to sort of implement things into our lives. Let's say your doctor uh, tells you and says, uh, Joel, um, you, listen, we, we've done some testing. You've got, you know, you've got high cholesterol. You really could stand to lose some weight. And if you don't, there's a high risk of a heart attack. That's, that's real. And some of us go through those kind of messages from our doctors. And in reality, for a lot of, a lot of us, it takes that event to happen before we really take action in our lives. It's just the way we are. I've often said the American way is to play now and pay later. I think that is, uh, that is true to a point. But today we're talking about a subject that um, we're all quite familiar with. It's something that our parents and our teachers and our pastors have preached for most of our lives. It's a subject that comes naturally to some people, but maybe doesn't really ever come to others. And the subject today is generosity, and specifically biblical generosity, uh, I think that um, oftentimes we either think of generosity as something that's just a God-given innate ability. God empowered some people to naturally be generous. For others of us, it kind of falls into this category of being a command, you know, a requirement that kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable. There's a, there's a lot of examples of commands from God to be generous in the Bible. You can look at Galatians 6 2, which I love because this is, a, this is kind of the foundational scripture for our home group. And Galatians 6 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So our home group carries one another's burdens, uh, burdens the best we can. You also you can look at Hebrews 13 16, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. But what most of us don't realize is that biblical generosity is not just a command. It's a promise. Did you know that? It's a promise. We're going to spend most of our time in the New Testament today, but to help us understand 
where the promise of generosity stems from, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. And the old, old school pastors would say, open your Bible to the first page and hang a right. So we're going to hang a right about 12 chapters. And I want to introduce you to um, what's called the Abrahamic covenant. And some of you may be familiar with that. Others of us, uh, not so much. Let me, let me read this scripture in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was an unconditional covenant from God to Abraham or Abram. What that means is this is a unilateral covenant. This was not two parties coming together to make an agreement. This was God himself coming before Abraham and saying, I am making this promise, this covenant to you and for you and through you for all humanity. And in fact, um, in that scripture, what we see is that Abraham was in a deep sleep. And so, as was customary in that time, they they would take an animal, as gruesome as it may seem, they would split the animal in half. And then, in a traditional covenant at that time, both parties would walk through both parts of the animal, binding the agreement, because the, the implications of that was that if either party broke that covenant, that um, they might suffer a similar fate. I mean, you, that's a serious, like, right? You talk about being a man of your word, or a woman of your word, there's a lot on the line there. And this covenant was ratified or validated by God in a letter from Paul to the Galatians. We're going to take a look at that here. Uh, in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that's all of us, have clothed, uh, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. We would be Gentiles because we did not come from the Jewish lineage. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, pay attention. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what promise that is? That's the promise that he made to Abraham in that deep sleep. That's the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying... We are grafted into that vine through Abraham, the lineage that ultimately came through Christ and that we're all born into that family. We get to be part of that promise. Incredible. So the core scripture today, um, I'm going to share with you here in 2 Corinthians 9. We needed to understand why and how generosity evolved and came from a promise through Abraham. And now Paul elaborates on what does this really mean for you and I? So here's what he says in his second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that, this is the why, In all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 
As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Now he, God, who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food, will also supply, uh, it will also increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Here we go. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We see the promise that we have everything that we need to be generous. We're going to unpack that a little bit more because if you're like me, you're thinking, about, you're thinking to yourself, do I really? We'll unpack that. But you know what the outcome is? The outcome is that those who come to Christ through our generosity would bring thanksgiving to God. They would rejoice. They would celebrate and God gets the glory for them entering into that eternal relationship with him, the recipient of our generosity. So now that we understand God's plan and promise of generosity, we're going to continue to look at some other misconceptions and misunderstandings about generosity. And the next one is that biblical generosity is not circumstantial. It should be intentional and consistent. So let's pick that apart a little bit here. Why would it be important to be intentional and consistent in our generosity? Well, I want to direct your attention to the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is out of Luke, well, the Gospels, but Luke 10, uh, 25. In this, in this parable, Jesus is, is telling a story about a man who was beaten to a pulp by two robbers. And this man was left essentially for dead on the side of a road. And it says, and I love about this scripture that Jesus told to make this about a Samaritan. And it says that the first person that walked by was a priest, right? One of the holy people, maybe a Pharisee or somebody in the Jewish culture. The second person that walked by without stopping was a Levite, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, very important people in that time. And Jesus used this parable and he used the example to say both of those people that probably that were the pious, you know, in an RA day, the pious Christian people uh, walked right by him. So you know what was interesting about the Samaritans? They were pretty despised by the Jewish culture. They were sort of like Jewish defects or rejects that developed their own religion that was based on pagan gods. So he used one of those people, which had to ruffle the feathers of the Jews that he was telling this to. Samaritans walking along, Samaritan sees the man picks up the man, takes him to the inn. And there's three qualities that, that we need to understand about the Samaritan that I think sometimes we miss. And the first is that he had time margin. He had enough time to stop, grab the man, and take him to the inn. And you've done it, and I've done it, and it's not to bring guilt or condemnation. We've all scooted right past the person on the side of the road or somebody that might be in need. Sometimes we're just busy, and we have to get to where we're going. That, that's understandable, but this gentleman had margin in his time, in his schedule. The second thing he had is he had relationships because he had enough relationship equity to go to the innkeeper to drop off this bloody human being, say, take care of him. Here's a deposit. So he, and you know what? So the third thing that he had is he had enough resources to not only give the deposit, but through the relationship he had with the innkeeper, he had enough relational equity to say, put it on my tab. I'll make it right. So that, that parable says so much about just serving people and being a loving human being, but I think it says a lot more about intentionality in generosity. 
Healthy generosity requires a healthy giving plan. It requires structuring our lives so that we can make maximum impact. I know that everybody in here to some degree wants to make impact in your lives, but maximizing your impact is what we're talking about. And it also requires making sure that you're adequately filled up. I don't mean here, I mean slightly higher. In your heart, in your soul, in your spirit. What does that mean? If you look at the early church, and by the way, if you ever want to know like what is God's heart for the church to look like, go look in the book of Acts. You'll see all these wonderful examples and illustrations of what the early church was like. In the book of Acts, the disciples that followed Jesus after he passed and ascended, they were sort of disbanded from Jerusalem. That's when he went out into, you know, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the world to preach the gospel. And they went out from their home with probably very few resources. I mean, they, they, whatever they had, they took with them. But they're, they're out probably in areas where they don't know anybody. And they're hanging out with maybe a few other believers. I don't know, they're probably tents that they're worshiping or, or tabernacles. There might be some homes of other believers. But you know how they made a way? You know how they made it all happen? Is because it was the generosity of the people that had enough. They made a way, and guess what? The advancement of the gospel of Jesus was dependent upon those people, those people that had some sort of healthy giving plan and recognized a need. But they would go out and they would share the gospel. And if you've ever done this, if you've gone out into the marketplace or on a mission trip and you just share and share and you give all of yourself to a cause, you get emptied and you have to come back and get refueled. And so that's what they did. They would come back to each other. They would gather together. They would fellowship, they would pray, they would share stories, they would get filled back up. And they would go back out, and they would pour themselves out. It's a mindset, but you know what? It's also an assignment. And that's a carefully chosen word, assignment, right? Slightly different from a command, but listen to this. 1 Corinthians 16.2, again, Paul writing in his first letter to Corinth. He said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This is a very common scripture shared in churches about giving to the church, understandably so, but it's really important you understand why Paul wrote this. So what was happening is the the remnant of believers that were in Jerusalem were suffering. And so there had to be collections taken up by other churches to be able to take care of these believers. So Paul said, all right, church of Corinth, you guys are well enough to do. And you've made this pledge that you're going to help. So here's what I'd like you to do is set that side at the beginning of every week in accordance with your income and we'll send somebody to pick it up. That way we don't have to go beat on doors, right? With collections and, and all that stuff. He, he didn't want to be the administrator of that. And you know what I think about? Did that take trust? Did that take trust for the Corinthians church to ship off their gifts and trust, you know, whoever was coming to collect it, that it was going to actually get to Jerusalem and get distributed? Sure it did. Absolutely. And I think, it's, I think it bears mentioning um, that if you're considering you know, giving it to a cause like Novation, that's something that the board takes very seriously. And if you ever want to have a conversation about that, we've always, we've always believed in transparency and have an open conversation. So we just invite you to do that. Beyond being a mindset and assignment, let me share this with you. It's also a cleansing process to be generous. If you've ever... Um, if you've ever been to a third world country, you see firsthand what goes on there. It strikes your heart. But I think about also if you've ever fasted, 
spend a time of fasting from eating, you know, as part of a sacrifice in your walk with the Lord. When you get hungry, when I get hungry when I fast, it not only makes me realize, man, I really value the food that God gives, right? I value being full, but it also reminds me of my reliance on God. So if you think about your generosity in the same vein, the sacrificial giving purifies us and it cleanses us and it brings us to the idea and understanding about the value of what generosity really means to somebody. It brings value to generosity. So, so intentional and consistent is God's heart for giving. Here's another misconception or misunderstanding about generosity, and that is that biblical generosity is not measured by quantity. It's measured by quality, or you could say sacrifice. What do you think matters more to God? How much somebody gives or the magnitude of their desire to give? Reframe it. Think about it in your own mind, in your own family. If you have children, or maybe you have nieces or nephews, if you've given them a lavish gift, you know, some kind of gift, does it not bring you so much joy to see that young person take that gift and say, you know what, I want to I give this, some of that to somebody else? It brings joy because it, 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 it helps us realize that they value the gift. Second Corinthians, this is Paul's second letter to Corinth in chapter 8, verse 12, Paul suggests that the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not what one doesn't have. And you know what a good summary of that scripture is? Proportional giving proportional giving. Look at the widow's might. I think many of us remember the story of the widow. Uh, and in that scripture, it says, truly, Jesus speaking, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything, all she had to live on, two little copper coins that she put into the offering. Now, I just think about the power of Jesus telling that to all these, I don't know, maybe more well-to-do people looking at that and going, huh, you know, yeah, he's exactly right. But also think about how she must have felt before people way above her socioeconomic means, sort of that demoralizing process of walking up and sticking two little coins in. But you know what God saw in her heart? He saw a genuine desire to give into the kingdom and and that brought him, I, I believe, much pleasure. And I also think about the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church up in northern portions of Greece were not very well off at this time of these scriptures when Paul wrote the letters. And he, in his letters to the church at Corinth, he referenced the Macedonians. And you know what he said about them? He said, they gave out of their poverty. Y'all are doing fine and we have to like wrangle you. We have to herd the cats here. They said they gave out of their generosity. And you know what's more than that, he said? He said they could not wait to give to help the church, that, the remnant that was in Jerusalem. He said they couldn't wait. They were bursting with excitement and eagerness to give what little they had to help those believers. And it's, it, you know, that's a, it's a beautiful way to reflect in our own world. Where are we at? And the last misunderstanding or misconception about biblical generosity is that it's not just for today. It's for eternity. 
Now you're like, okay, last point, sweet, it's, it's 10.57, we're going to get out of here early. No, we're going to hang out here for a little while, so hang with me on this. But, but I really want you, I, I hope and pray that you connect in the same way that I have about this understanding. So I believe that the measure of every person's generosity boils down to whether you see your giving as an investment or an expense. Attempting to answer this question can cause you some internal conflict. And it can also cause some internal conflict in your marriage. I'm just going to warn you right now. It can also cause you to think, why is this guy up on stage getting all up in my business? Um, And really, I'm not. God is. Uh, I'm just the intermediary here. But the truth about whether your giving is viewed as an investment or an expense is really derived by two underlying questions. Where do your money and your gifts come from? Does it come from your employer? Does it come from an inheritance? Did you find it on the street corner? Did you cash out that preseason bet that Russell Wilson was not going to be the starting quarterback at the end of the season? Really, though, where do your money and your gifts come from? And secondly, how does the one who gave them to you want you to use them? One of my favorite identifiers as a Christian is this uh, idea or really reality that we are ambassadors of heaven. You know what's special about being an ambassador is that you um, are given access to the king's resources. When you're an ambassador of a king, you, you are entitled to his resources so that you can carry out the plan and the purpose of that king. And so when you understand that your money and your giftings are all supplied from a divine creator God, the more you read about him, the more you spend time with him, you realize that not only is his supply not limited, he doesn't run out of resources. But you also realize that it's not 100% for you and for me. What we have are resources bestowed upon us from the king to use according to his plan and purpose. There's no question that there are practical reasons for us to be generous today, right now, for this very place and time. The scriptures teach us a lot about the importance of the church and how communities came together in so many ways to further the kingdom of God. The early church in Acts, we talked about that, right? They were exiled from Jerusalem. They were likely meeting in who knows where, and they, they needed resources, and God provided through the generosity of the early church. But let's go back a little bit into the Old Testament here. And I want, to, I want to focus on King David when he was preparing to build the temple for the Lord. Now, David didn't actually end up building it. It was his son Solomon. But David was the one who had the vision who God gave the plan for the temple. And he was also the one who prepared the resources. I, don't read, I want to read to you in 1 Chronicles 29 and about David preparing the temple. This is what it said. The temple will be built for the Lord. And David said, with all my riches, I've done everything that I could do for the temple of my God. I've provided gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, onyx, and turquoise. With all my heart, I want the temple of God to be built. So I'm giving my personal treasures for it. And how many of you are willing to set apart yourselves to the Lord today? That's what he asked to the people who were listening. And he goes on and says, many people were willing to give. They included the leaders of families and the officers of the tribes of Israel. They included the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. And they also included 
officials who were in charge of the king's work. And it says they gave tons and tons of gold, silver, and jewels. As if the wealthiest king that had ever lived didn't have enough, these people brought tons and tons of valuable resources. They wanted to be a part of it. And it goes on to say the people were happy when they saw what their leaders had been willing to give. The leaders had given freely with their whole heart, and they had given everything to the Lord. And it says King David was filled with joy. Let's stay in the Old Testament for a moment. I want to talk about a gentleman named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was tasked with rebuilding the temple wall. So let me give you a little bit of a timeline here. Uh, Solomon, King David's son, the, the heir to that throne, King Solomon, built the temple around 950 BC. So almost a thousand years BC. Um, in 600 BC, so 350 years later, the Jews were captured by the Babylonians because of their disobedience. We read, read about that through um, those kind of Middle Old Testament books. And uh, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. They tore the whole thing down. And by the 5th century, so only 50 years BC, so another 550 years later, the Jews were finally allowed uh, to re-enter Jerusalem and they were allowed to rebuild the temple. Now the late prophets kind of spearheaded the rebuilding of the temple, but Nehemiah he was tasked with rebuilding the wall. And that's extremely significant for two reasons. Well, one is the wall was the kind of the completion of the temple, right? And these, it, the Jews had been waiting for hundreds of years to be allowed to rebuild the temple. It was incredibly sacred and important to them. But not only was the wall the completion, the wall was also, it was a huge barrier to opposition. It was protection for the temple. So this Prophet Nehemiah was tasked with rebuilding the wall. Look what it says in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, uh, about this process. It said that he divided the task into 41 sections. And it says priests from Jerusalem and the surrounding region came. Goldsmiths came. Perfume makers, Levites, the temple servants, the guards of the East Gate, merchants came. And leaders and workers from at least nine different towns all came together to spearhead this process. By the way, in the face of extreme opposition from the political leaders of the time, they didn't want Nehemiah to do it, but God supernaturally, through the desire and willingness of all of these people, let Nehemiah rebuild the wall. Here's a couple of examples from the New Testament that I think are important, that I, I love looking at. And one is the woman, if you remember the woman who poured the expensive perfume all over Jesus' head? What an amazing act of generosity. And it takes a little bit different twist because her act of generosity actually is sort of counter what we could do with this expensive thing, right? Material resources for the church or for the, uh, the early believers. So what happens is she goes and she pours this expensive perfume on Jesus' head and he is just delighted. What are the, what are the apostles saying? They're like, oh man, we could have used that. We could have sold that and provided for the orphans and widows. And Jesus is like, Shh, this is nice. Let it be. <laughs> Something like that, paraphrasing. And what about a gentleman known as Joseph of Aramea? Recall, he was the one that supplied the tomb for Jesus' uh, burial. Um, I, I believe that not only was Joseph a fairly well-to-do man, fairly well-off, but I think he also had some really important political relationships to be allowed to take the body of Jesus who was crucified and then to be able to bury him in this tomb. There was some cost associated with that, you have to believe. 
But what a beautiful act of generosity that was. And these examples all involve some sort of material possession and a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and time. They also involve genuine willingness to participate with God. But there's another element, though, that we're missing here. And that is that every single believer has spiritual gifts bestowed upon them. Everyone in here, through faith and being born again, in Christ Jesus, we're giving spiritual gifts. And they're designed for us to use to further the kingdom. Administration, discernment, hospitality, leadership, teaching, healing, and so on. Whether that's for the church itself, whether that's for your neighbors, your communities, your ministries, God gives those things for furthering the kingdom. Bless you. And God requests that we're generous with our time, our talents, and our treasures. And he wants you and I to listen how and when to take action. So we've talked a lot about generosity for today. Well, let's talk about this concept of generosity for eternity for just a few moments. In 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, Paul's writing to this young protege, Timothy. And he said to Timothy, command those who are rich in the present age to do good and to be rich in deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will store up treasures as a firm foundation that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. So what does that mean to store up treasures? Are we really talking about some like eternal investment account? What, what, what really is this? Well, it's pretty clear in this command from Paul to Timothy, you know, by way of God, that we are to, um, to, he was commanding the rich in this present age. So, so I think we have to reframe for just a minute. Who are the rich? And if, you know, if you're like most of us reading this, you say, you know, look, I don't drive a Rolls Royce. I don't have a house on the hill. I don't have shiny boats and RVs and, you know, beach houses with frill. That actually kind of rhyme. That's kind of like a, a country song or something. But you might be thinking that to yourself. I mean, really, right? We, we think, when we think about being rich, we, we think a lot of times about what we don't have. But here's the definition of rich. I, I think this is a good definition. is having more than you need. If you have more than you need to eat, to sleep, and to live, if you have any dispensable income, then, then you are essentially rich enough to fall into this command. The difficult thing is here, I can't and I won't, even for a minute, pretend to advise you or to, to tell you what you're supposed to do with what God's given you. I'm responsible for leading and teaching, just like anybody else in the church, but um, this is between you and God. I'm, and I'm not saying, by the way, that we should all live in one-bedroom apartments or shacks with sleeping on cots and sitting on boxes and having like one pair of clothes to wear every day. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying that when you, get, when you participate with God, it's freeing and liberating to work with him to decide what is right for you and your family. And then realizing that we have enough. We have enough to be generous. And you know, sometimes we, uh, we compare our wealth to each other. We compare our status. Um, and we even compare our generosity to other people. How much am I giving compared to, to other people? But I think that um, I want you to think about heaven with me for just a minute. We know 
about the scriptures that there will be rewards in heaven. We read that there will be the victor's crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory, and a myriad other rewards for our acts of service, our labors, and our gifts. But track with me on this for just a second. Hang in here. If there is no sin in heaven, then by default, I believe there is no remorse. There is no regret. There is no inferiority complex. There is no inadequacy. When we are entering into heaven and we are given our rewards, I believe there are some that are going to have more rewards than other people. I I think that's just scriptural. But you know what I don't think is going to happen is I don't think you're going to walk up to the person that has a giant pile of crowns and say, oh man, like I really, I really stunk it up in life. I mean, you have way more crowns than me. I I really think what's going to happen is there will be a genuine respect and admiration for those people and their rewards. And I also believe that that same person will walk over to you and I and say, yo, great, look at your rewards. This is amazing. And guess what? We're all in awe and splendor of the king that we reign with for all eternity anyway. But somehow these rewards are connected. Somehow we will understand them. And so... As we wrap up, think about the parable of the talents with me for just a moment. You know, the the master, the employer comes to his servants and he gives them talents, material possessions. And he did that in accordance with their abilities is what the scripture says. We don't see the master belittling the person that had one or two and comparing, and we don't see them comparing themselves to the person that has five. So I think what we ought to be doing is thinking about our giving in accordance with what we've been given. And look, just being raw with you, I'm on my own journey with generosity. My wife, my dad, Scott, these folks have walked with me a long time. And there's been moments where I've given the last of what's in my bank account to help a family and not gotten so much as a thank you out of it. And it does, it stirs up the, what the heck am I doing this for syndrome. But I've also had times and have times when I struggle separating the the seed for sowing and the seed for consumption. Like how much do we give and how much do we consume? We're all a work in process. One of the guys that I love in this world is a guy named Coach O. Um, He's a world-class leadership coach and he he has a saying that um, goes like this, how you do anything is how you'll do everything. And what he's saying, the things is that the things that matter most to you will be evident in how you live your life. And guess what? You can practice. We can practice generosity. We can get a little bit better at it. And we can build these habits and structure our lives in a way that make maximum impact. So wherever you're at in this process, one of the best things you can do is close your eyes and picture yourself before God and ask yourself in front of him, can I be trusted? And then listen for God saying, you have done well with little. I'll put you over much. And secondly, ask yourself, am I giving cheerfully and consistently with my time, talents, and treasures? And you know, it's not a matter of salvation because salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, but it is a matter of sanctification. That's the process of becoming more like Jesus throughout this life. So I'll just tell you this today. If your heart is stirred and convicted, for being a little more generous, 
and it's stirred with being loving and compassionate, I, I have to believe God's pleased with you today. So pray with me. Let's, let's close up today. Lord, there is nothing in the scriptures that we're to leave out. Every word that you breathed into the Bible is important for us. We take you at that word and we submit ourselves humbly but thankfully that you enrich us and empower us to do good and to do your will. Let us be encouraged today. Let us be inspired, not condemned, but convicted, Lord, and just draw to you a little more closely. Lord, your power and your mercy and your love, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.